Hi everybody, Wallace D. Wattles Ultimate Collection, 10 books in one volume. We shall review the science of getting rich, the science of being well, the science of being great. How to get what you want and more from one of the new thought pioneers, author of Making of the Man Who Can, or How to Promote Yourself and New Science of Living and Healing, or Health Through New Thought. And fasting, the science trilogy, it's available in the Play Store, no audio book. There are other titles, how to get what you want the science of being well trilogy the science of being great self-help No audiobooks found, only ebooks. Shall we begin some of the scriptures from the Bible? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Mark 13 and 31. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe, that you have received them and they shall be given you. Mark eleven twenty four. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Matthew 28 and 20b. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. 
and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 16 and 25. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Mark 6 and 33. Oasis Audio presents War Room by Chris Fabry, based on the motion picture by Alex Kendrick and Stephen Kendrick, read for you by the author. Dedications from Chris Fabry to Angela Yuan, Prayer Warrior, from Alex Kendrick. 
to Christina, my precious wife. I long for and cherish your love, support, and prayers. May this encourage you. From Stephen Kendrick To Jill, my favorite person on earth, you are a walking answer to my prayers. I love you and am grateful that I married a permanent prayer partner for life. Epigram To get nations back on their feet, we must first get down on our knees. Billy Graham Miss Clara She was an old woman with gray hair and dark skin, and she gave a sigh of relief as she pulled into the cemetery parking lot, as if just being able to apply the brake was an answer to prayer. She shuffled among the tombstones resolutely, nodding in recognition as she passed familiar names. It was becoming difficult to dredge up faces along with the names. Her gait was steady, and each footstep took her closer to her destination, a tombstone that read Williams. When she reached it, she stood and let the fresh, earthy smell wash over her. It felt like rain. You always loved the rain, didn't you, Leo? she said aloud. Yes, you did. You loved the rain. In these sacred moments of Clara Williams' life, she knew she was not talking to her husband. She knew where his soul was, and it was not under the green earth below her. Still, the exercise cleared her mind and connected her with the past in a way nothing else could. She could look at pictures of Leo in his military uniform and a few tattered photographs he had carried with him after he'd come home from Vietnam, and those brought her closer. But there was nothing like the feeling of running her hand across the cut stone and feeling the carved-out name and adjusting the little flag on top of his grave. There always had to be a flag there. Clara had no concept of military warfare, except for those pictures her husband kept. She couldn't bring herself to watch war movies, especially the documentaries with grainy footage of men in combat, falling napalm and the recoil of M-16s against naked shoulders. She flipped as fast as she could past the PBS station that aired those. It hit too close to the bone. But Clara did know another conflict. It was waged every day on six billion battlefields of the human heart. She knew enough about warfare to realize that, tucked away in some place protected from the onslaught of bullets and bombs, someone had developed a strategy. She pictured her husband staring at maps and coordinates. Sweaty and tired and scared, he and his men would analyze what the enemy was doing and mobilize resources to push back against their advance. In the years since his death, she had heard stories of his bravery, his sacrifice for his men. We need men with steel backbone today, Leo, she said. Like you, steel backbone and a heart of gold. But Leo's heart had given out early and left her alone with a ten-year-old son. His death had been sudden. She hadn't prepared for it. In her thirties, she thought she had plenty of time and that life would stretch out forever. But life had not worked that way. Life had its own strategy, and time had cut like a river into her heart. Clara gingerly knelt by the tombstone and pulled at weeds, thinking of a day forty years earlier when she stood at this same spot with her only son. 
I wish you could see Clyde, she said. He looks so much like you, Leo. Talks like you. Has some of the same mannerisms. The way he laughs, kind of low and easy-like. I wish you could see the man he's become. Forty years earlier, she had stood here with Clyde, looking at the stones covering the landscape and loved ones. Why do people have to die, Mama? he had said. She had answered him too quickly. She told him death comes to everyone, and quoted the verse about it being appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Then she realized he wasn't looking for theology, but something else entirely. She knelt at the same spot and told him the truest thing she knew. I don't know why people have to die, son. I don't think death was what God wanted, but it sure was part of somebody's plan. I believe God is big enough and powerful enough to use it. There's more going on here than we can see. Clyde had just looked at her with tears in his eyes. She'd hugged him and cried with him, and the more questions he asked, the tighter she held on. The words drifted high above the trees and blew with the wind. She could still feel his hug there at the gravestone. I never thought of myself growing older, she said to her husband, and looked at the wrinkled skin of her weathered hands. I tried to carry on and just head into life, and now four decades have passed like a strong wind. I've tried to learn the lessons God has taught me. She pulled herself up and brushed the grass away from her knees. I'm sorry, Leo. I wish I could go back and try again. I wish I had another chance. But it's okay now. You rest easy. I'll be seeing you soon, I expect. She lingered a few moments, the memories flooding back, then took the long walk to the car and heard voices in the distance. A couple argued about thirty yards away. Clara couldn't hear the words, couldn't tell what the argument was about, but she wanted to shake them and point at the stones and tell them they were fighting the wrong battle, tell them to see the real enemy, and that victories didn't come by accident. They came with strategy and mobilized resources. The couple got in their car and drove away, and Clara shuffled back to hers and climbed in, suddenly out of breath. If I didn't know better, I'd think this cemetery gets bigger and longer every time I come, she muttered to herself. She could hear Leo laugh, that bittersweet echo across the years. Chapter One Elizabeth Jordan noticed everything wrong with the house she was selling before she ever knocked on the front door. She saw flaws in the landscaping and cracks in the driveway and a problem with the drainage of the roof near the garage. Just before she knocked three times, she saw chipping paint on a window sill. This was her job. Presentation was everything. You had only one chance to make a first impression with a potential buyer. She saw her reflection in a window and straightened her shoulders, tugging on her dark jacket. She had her hair back, which accentuated her strong face, prominent nose, high forehead, and chocolatey skin. Elizabeth had a lineage she could trace back over a hundred fifty years. She had taken a trip with her husband and infant daughter ten years earlier 
to a plantation in the deep south where her great-great-great-grandmother had lived. The little shack had been rebuilt, along with other slave quarters on the property, and the owners had searched the country for any relatives. Just walking inside made her feel like she was touching the heart of her ancestors, and she fought back tears as she imagined their lives. She'd held her daughter close and thanked God for the perseverance of her people, their legacy, and the opportunities she had that they could never imagine. Elizabeth waited until the door opened, then smiled at the slightly younger woman before her. Melissa Tabor held a box of household items and struggled to maintain the cell phone balanced on her shoulder. Her mouth rounded into an O. Mom, I gotta go, she said into the phone. Elizabeth smiled, patiently waiting. Over her shoulder, Melissa said, Jason and David, get rid of the ball and help me with these boxes. Elizabeth wanted to reach out and help her, but had to duck as a kickball flew past her head. It bounced harmlessly in the yard behind her, and she laughed. Oh, I'm so sorry, Melissa said. You must be Elizabeth Jordan. I am, and you're Melissa? The box nearly fell as Melissa shook hands with Elizabeth. Yes, I'm sorry. We just started packing. No problem. Can I help you with that? A man with a briefcase and a work folder slipped past them. Honey, I gotta be in Knoxville at two, but I finished the closet. He held up a stuffed bear and dropped it into the box. That was in the refrigerator. He passed Elizabeth on the front step and stopped, pointing at her. Real estate agent, he said, sounding proud of himself. Not a name, but a title he put on her. She was someone to put in a pigeonhole in his head. Elizabeth smiled and pointed back. Software rep. How did you know that, he said, his eyes wide. It's on that folder you're holding in your hand. She was just as good at categorizing and commentating. She had to work at the connecting with others, especially with her husband. He looked at the folder and nodded with a knowing chuckle, as if impressed by her observational powers. I would love to stay, but I have to leave. My wife can answer everything about the house. We realize it's a disaster, and we've agreed to blame it on our kids. He glanced at Melissa. So I'll call you tonight. Love you, Melissa said, still holding the box. With that, he was gone down the walk to the car. He passed the kickball and didn't seem to notice. I understand, Elizabeth said. My husband does the same thing. Pharmaceuticals. Oh, Melissa said. Does he get tired of the travel? He doesn't seem to. I think he likes being able to drive and clear his head, you know, instead of being cooped up in an office all day. While you're showing houses and dealing with people in big transitions... Elizabeth stepped inside and noticed twelve things that would have to change if they were to make a sale. More first impressions. But she wouldn't list them all at the moment, because she also saw something in Melissa's face that was close to panic. You know, they say that outside of death and divorce, moving is the most stressful change you go through. She put a hand on the woman's shoulder. And this is probably not the first time you've moved in the past few years. Melissa shook her head. These are the same boxes we used last time. Elizabeth nodded and saw missing paint on a ding in the wall, but tried to focus. You're going to get through this. Right then, a boy with spiked blonde hair ran down the stairs, followed closely by another waving a tennis racket. Both were about the same age as Elizabeth's daughter and 
had enough energy to light a small city for a year. Who needed power plants and windmills when you had adolescent boys? Melissa sighed. Are you sure about that? Tony Jordan had begun the day in an upscale suites hotel in Raleigh. He was up early, working out in the weight room alone. He loved the quiet, and most people on the road didn't work out at 5 a.m. Then he showered and dressed and had a bowl of fruit and some juice in the breakfast area. Other travelers hurried through, eating donuts or waffles or sugary cereal. He needed to stay fit and keep the edge so he could stay on his game, and his health was a big part of that. He'd always believed that if you had your health, you had everything. Tony looked in the mirror as he headed out the door. His close-cropped hair was just the right length. The shirt and tie were crisp and hugged his running-back neck strong and wide. His mustache was tightly trimmed above his upper lip, a goatee on his chin. He looked good, confident. To tune up for the meeting later, he flashed a smile and stuck out a hand and said, Hey, Mr. Barnes. As an African-American, he'd always felt like he was one step behind most of his white co-workers and competitors. Not because he lacked skill or ability or eloquence, but simply because of his skin color. Whether that was reality or not, he couldn't tell. How could he crawl inside the mind of someone meeting him for the first time? But he had felt the questioning looks, the split-second hesitation of someone who shook his hand the first time. He'd even felt it from his bosses at Brightwell, especially Tom Bennett, one of the vice presidents. Tony saw him as part of the old boy network, another white guy who knew somebody who knew somebody else and had eased into management, working his way a little too quickly up the ladder. Tony had tried to impress the man with his sales ability, his easygoing demeanor, the attitude that said, I got this, trust me. But Tom was a hard sell, and Tony couldn't help but wonder if his skin color had something to do with it. Accepting the reality he perceived, Tony vowed he would simply work harder, push harder, and live up to every expectation. But in the back of his mind, he felt this unseen hurdle wasn't fair. Other people with lighter skin color didn't have to deal with it, so why should he? The hurdle in front of him today was Holcomb. There was no getting around the difficulty of the sale. But what was an easy sale? Even the quick ones took time and preparation and knowing and seeing. This was his secret, the intangibles, remembering names, remembering details about the customer's life, things like the ping driver he had in the trunk. Calvin Barnes was going to salivate when Tony handed him that driver, as well he should. It had set Tony back a few hundred, but it was a small price to pay for the look on his boss's face when he heard Tony had sealed the deal. The boardroom was tastefully decorated, the smell of leather permeating the hallway as he walked in and put his sample case on the redwood table. Calvin Barnes, who did not like to be called Calvin, would walk through the door and shake Tony's hand, so the driver needed to lean against the chair to Tony's left, out of view. He placed it there, then moved it into the chair and let the grip stick out over the back. When he heard voices down the hallway, he put the driver back on the floor. He needed to be more subtle. Mr. Barnes walked in with another man, a familiar face. 
But for a moment, Tony froze, unable to remember the man's name. He tried to relax, to recall the name using his mnemonic device. He'd pictured the man standing in a huge landfill with a John Deere hat on. Deering. That was the last name. But he couldn't remember why he was standing in a land... Tony, you remember... Phil Deering, Tony said, extending a hand. Good to see you again. The man looked stunned, then smiled as he shook Tony's hand. Mr. Barnes threw his head back and laughed. You just won me twenty bucks. I told you he'd remember, Phil. His eyes fell on the golf club. And what have we here? That's the one I was talking about, Mr. Barnes, Tony said. I'll be shocked if it doesn't add at least thirty yards to every drive. Your job is to make sure they're straight down the middle. Mr. Barnes picked up the driver and held it. He was a scratch golfer who played three times a week and had designs on retiring to Florida. An extra 30 yards on his drives meant Barnes could exploit his short game, which meant that 72 for 18 holes could come down to a 70, maybe lower on a good day. The weight is just perfect, Tony, and the balance is phenomenal. Tony watched him hold the club and was certain he had the sale even before he opened his case. When they'd signed the papers and cared for the legal parts of the transaction, Tony stood. He knew he cut an impressive figure in his suit and tie and athletic build. I need to get you back on the course and work on that putting of yours, Mr. Barnes said. Maybe next time I'm through, Tony said, smiling. You don't mind coming all the way out here even this early? No, I do not. I enjoy the drive. Well, we're excited to do business with you, Tony, Mr. Barnes said. Tell Coleman I said hello. I'll do it. Oh, and thanks for the new driver. Hey, you enjoy it, okay? Tony shook hands with them. Gentlemen, we'll be in touch. He walked out of the room almost floating. There was no feeling like making a sale. As he neared the elevators, he could hear Calvin Barnes crowing about his new driver and how much he wanted to take the afternoon off and play the back nine at the nearest country club. While he waited, Tony checked his phone for anything he'd missed during the meeting, when he made a point of keeping it in his pocket. This was another thing he always tried to do. Value clients enough to make them the central focus. Never make your clients feel like there is anyone on the planet more important than them. They are your priority every time. A young woman walked down a white staircase before him, carrying a leather folder and smiling. He put his phone away and smiled back. I see you made the sale, she said. He nodded confidently. Of course. I'm impressed. Most guys run out with their tail between their legs. Tony extended a hand. I'm Tony Jordan. Veronica Drake, she said, shaking with him. Her hand was warm and soft. I work for Mr. Barnes. I'll be your contact for the purchase. She handed him her card and brushed his hand slightly. Nothing overt, but he felt something click with her touch. Veronica was vivacious and slim, and Tony imagined them together at some restaurant talking. Then he imagined them by romantic firelight, Veronica leaning toward him, her lips moist and pleading. All this happened in a second as he stared at her business card. Mm-hmm. Well, Veronica Drake... I guess I'll be seeing you again when I return in two weeks. I'll look forward to it, she said, and the way she smiled made him think she meant it. She walked away, 
and he turned and watched her a little too intently. As he waited for the elevator, his phone beeped, and he looked at the screen. Bank notice. Transfer. Here he was with the biggest sale in months, something he'd worked on and planned intricately, and right at the apex of his elation at the sale, he'd been given another smackdown by his wife. Elizabeth, you're killing me, he whispered. Elizabeth sat on the white ottoman at the foot of her bed, rubbing her feet. The time with Melissa had been good. She'd been able to make a list of all the repairs and staging decisions that had to be done. The two boys hadn't made things easier, but children always had a way of complicating home sales. It was something you just needed to work with and hope you could navigate. It had been a long day, with another meeting in the afternoon, and then getting home before Danielle arrived from her last day of school. By the time she sat down, Elizabeth was exhausted and ready to curl up and sleep, but there was more to be done. There was always more to be done. Mom? Elizabeth couldn't move. I'm in here, Danielle. Her ten-year-old daughter walked in carrying something. She had grown several inches in the last year, her thin, long body sprouting up like a weed. She wore a cute purple headband that highlighted her face. Elizabeth could see her father there, that bright smile, eyes full of life. Except her eyes were a little downcast. Here's my latest report card. I still got one C. Elizabeth took it and looked it over as Danielle sat and shrugged off her backpack. Oh, baby, you have an A in everything else. One C in math is not that bad. But you get a break for the summer, right? Danielle leaned forward, and her face betrayed something. She sniffed, and then reacted like the room was full of ammonia. Is that your feet? Elizabeth self-consciously pulled her foot away. I'm sorry, baby. I ran out of foot powder. That smells terrible. I know, Danielle. I just needed to take my shoes off for a minute. Her daughter stared at her mother's feet like they were toxic waste. That's, like, awful, she said, repulsed. Well, don't just sit there looking at them. Why don't you give me a hand and rub them right there? Ew, no way! Elizabeth laughed. Girl, go set the table for dinner. When your daddy gets home, you can show him your report card, okay? Danielle took a report card into the kitchen, and Elizabeth was alone again. The odor hadn't been a problem until a few years earlier, and the foot powder seemed to take care of it. But maybe she was kidding herself. Maybe the odor was the sign of some deeper problem. What was she thinking? Some disease? Some problem with her liver that leaked out the pores of her feet? She had a friend, Missy, who was constantly looking online at various aches and pains and connecting them with her own symptoms. One day, she'd be worried about a skin problem and conclude she had melanoma. The next day, a headache would be diagnosed as a tumor. Elizabeth vowed she would not become a hypochondriac. She just had stinky feet. She picked up one of her flats and sniffed. There'd been a cheese served at the hotel where she and Tony had honeymooned that smelled just like that. She dropped the shoe. Funny how a smell could trigger her brain to think about something that happened sixteen years earlier. She ran her hand over the comforter and thought about that first night together. All the anticipation, all the excitement, 
She hadn't slept in two days, and the wedding had been a blur. When her head hit the pillow in the honeymoon suite, she was just gone. Tony had been upset, and what red-blooded American male wouldn't be? But what red-blooded American females needed was a little understanding, a little grace. She had made up for her honeymoon drowsiness the next day, but it was something they had to talk through. Tony had talked a lot in the year they had dated and been engaged, but not long after the I do's, something got his tongue, and the river of words slowed to a drip. She wished she could find the valve or tell where to place the plunger to get him unclogged. They didn't have a bad marriage. It wasn't like those celebrities on TV who went from one relationship to the next, or the couple down the street who threw things onto the lawn after every argument. She and Tony had produced a beautiful daughter, and they had stable careers. Yes, he was a little aloof, and they'd grown apart. But she was sure that drift wouldn't last forever. It couldn't. Elizabeth put her shoes away, as far back into the closet as she could, then went to the kitchen to start dinner. She filled a pot with water, put it on the stove, and dumped in the spaghetti. The water came to a slow boil, and she stirred the tomato sauce in a pan next to it. Elizabeth watched the spaghetti, feeling something happening, something boiling inside her, a stirring she couldn't put her finger on. Call it restlessness or longing. Call it fear. Maybe this was all she could hope for. Maybe this was as good as marriage got, or life, for that matter. Maybe they were destined to go separate ways and occasionally meet in the middle. But she had a nagging feeling that she was missing something. That their marriage could be more than two people with a nice house who rarely spent time together. Elizabeth was busy with the salad, and Danielle was putting napkins next to each plate at the table, when the garage door began its hideous sound, a clacking that had gotten louder in the past year. If Elizabeth had been trying to sell their own house, she'd have suggested they get it looked at by her garage door guy. But Tony was content to let it clack and clamor, like their marriage. I just heard him pull in, Danielle. Will he be mad at my sea? Danielle said. The look in her eyes made Elizabeth wonder. She wanted to march out to the garage and tell Tony to affirm their daughter, say something positive. Look at how full the glass was and not see the one little thing that was less than perfect. I already told you, baby, getting a C is not that bad. It's okay. She said it to convince not just Danielle, but also herself, because she knew her husband wouldn't feel the same. Miss Clara Clara was in her war room, as she called it, when she got the distinct impression that her life was about to change. It was a sense that she was about to do something drastic, but she had no clue what it was or why she should do it. Skydiving? She chuckled. At her age, the ground was already too far away. Find some homeless woman down on the corner by the grocery and give her a sandwich? She had done that the day before. Clara knew that prayer could easily become a list of things for God to do. Just run through the gamut of wants, needs, or things hoped for and put an amen at the end. Any way you sliced it, she thought, it was selfish. 
At the core of every human heart was someone who wanted to please herself, she believed. And that truth fought against the power of prayer. Prayer, at its most basic level, was surrender. Like Jesus in the garden saying, Not my will, but yours be done. The ironic thing was, when a person surrendered their will, they got God's and then they received what they were really looking for all along. This was what she believed. Earlier in her life, she had looked at prayer as talking to God and telling Him things. It was like crawling up in the lap of a daddy and explaining your aches and pains and disappointments. But after a while, she discovered the listening part of prayer, the allowing of God's Holy Spirit to move and help her recall things and desire things she hadn't requested. In her war room, the little closet on the second floor of her home, something began to stir. There was no audible voice, no mysterious letters sticking out at her from the word jumble in the morning paper. It was simply a sense that God was moving, pushing her from her comfort zone. She had no idea what that meant, and the more she prayed and asked God what the feeling was, the more quiet the Almighty seemed to get. Whatever you want to do, Lord, I'm willing to go with you. Just lead the way. And then she waited. Chapter 2 Tony pulled into the garage and turned off the ignition. He hit the remote and watched the garage door inch its way down behind him. He had flipped through stations on his way home, trying to subdue the anger with some song on an oldies station. But instead, he heard a conversation on a sports talk program about another football player accused of doping. The player had also had a public conflict with his wife. Everywhere Tony looked, he was being brought back to his situation with Elizabeth. Why did she have to do that with their money? Why did she spend? He had switched off the radio and stewed as he drove the familiar streets of Concord, North Carolina. It was funny how he could get in the groove of his thoughts and not remember making turns or passing familiar landmarks. Such was life on the road. He loved Elizabeth. He had always loved her. But he didn't like her right now, and couldn't remember the last time the two had spent an evening together without getting into an argument. Maybe this was what married life became. Maybe this was the rut you got into and had to stay in the rest of your life. But he hadn't signed up for this. As the garage door shut, Tony grabbed his satchel, and the business card Veronica had given him fell to the floor. He picked it up pulled out his phone, and flipped to the app where he kept important names and numbers he needed to remember. This would record the information and any notes on his phone, and he could access it from any device. He held the card to his nose and smelled a slight hint of Veronica's perfume that lingered. She was so delicate, slim and vibrant and younger, and interested. She'd given him the distinct impression that she was interested. It had been a long time since he'd felt that from anyone, especially Elizabeth. He put the card in his satchel and took a deep breath. He was not going to yell. He was not going to fly off the handle. He was not going to be somewhere else, as Elizabeth often accused him. He would be there for Danielle and his wife. 
But before he could be there, he needed to set the money thing straight. If he got that out of the way, he'd be fine. He could go on with life and not feel so tight, so constricted. He walked inside and was greeted by the familiar smell of cooking spaghetti. He'd come to hate spaghetti because it was a symbol of their marriage, something quick and easy to get on the table. Couldn't Elizabeth learn to cook something else? Danielle greeted him with a hopeful look. She was holding something in front of her. Hey, Daddy. Hey, Danielle. He wanted to sound warmer, but there were things on his mind. Tony put his satchel on the counter and turned to Elizabeth. I got my last report card, and I made all A's except for one C. So I just got a notification that you moved $5,000 from our savings into your checking account, Tony said, ignoring Danielle. Elizabeth stopped dipping salad into the three bowls on the counter and glanced at him like some frightened child. Danielle was silent. He stared at Elizabeth, his voice stern. That better not be so you can prop up your sister again. And with that, her back raised up. He tried to hold back, but five thousand dollars and the history with her sister sent him over the edge. You just gave that much money to your family last month, Elizabeth said. And my sister needs it more than your parents. My parents are elderly, Tony said, his heart rate rising. Your sister married a bum, and I'm not supporting someone who's too lazy to work. Darren is not a bum. He's just having a hard time finding a job. Liz, he is a bum. I can't even remember the last time he had a job. Elizabeth's face tightened as she glanced at Danielle. He noticed his daughter walking away from them, the piece of paper on the island. What did she say? A report card? The effect on Elizabeth was instant. She de-escalated quickly, tossing a shaming look at him. Can we talk about this later? Tony stood firm. No, we'll talk about it now. Because if you want to give them what you make, that's fine. But you're not giving them my money. Your money. That brought out the fangs. The last time I checked, we both put money into that account. And the last time I checked, I make about four times what you do, so you don't move a cent out of that account without asking me first. So much for keeping his cool. So much for being there. Tony kicked himself for exploding, but they were too far into the dance now to turn back, and she had to hear the truth once and for all about their finances. Elizabeth looked away for a moment, and he felt the old wound reopen. He had heard early in marriage that once children came along, a wife turned her heart to the kids, and a husband turned his heart to his work. He told himself that wouldn't happen with them. He wouldn't let it happen. She wouldn't let it happen. But here they were. Can we please just eat dinner? Elizabeth said in a measured tone, like she was trying to talk a nervous home buyer down off the ledge after he looked at the interest of a thirty-year mortgage. Tony glanced at the table, the plates and napkins, the salad and spaghetti, and he couldn't take it. There was something inside that wouldn't let him just sit down and bite his tongue and ask Danielle about her grades or anything else because of that five thousand dollars for crying out loud. Five thousand dollars. You know what? Go ahead, he said, picking up his jacket and satchel. I'm going to the gym. Elizabeth watched Tony turn his back to her and walk toward the bedroom. She wanted to scream at him. 
She wanted to run out and jump in her car and go to the gym herself. Why couldn't she be the one to run away? But running from their problems didn't help anything. She wanted to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe and argue until he heard her, finally heard what she was saying, instead of accusing and walking away. That was what he always did, and it infuriated her. Just ended the conversation like he was slamming the door on an aluminum siding salesman. The thing that had kept her from exploding was the sight of Danielle. She had stood there looking at her report card. All those A's. And all she could do was stare at the sea. No wonder. Danielle had been nervous about her father's reaction, but he didn't react. He hardly acknowledged her presence, let alone her concern. Why couldn't he see what he was doing to her? Any person with half a heart could see it. Elizabeth smelled something acrid, some disturbance in the cooking force, and looked at the oven. A tuft of smoke belched from the vent, and her heart sank. She opened the oven door and pulled out the rolls that were supposed to look all buttery and brown on top, but were as black as charcoal. She picked one up with prongs and inspected it. Well, I burned the rolls, she said, more to herself than anyone else. She tossed the roll in the trash and then threw the whole batch out. It's okay, Mom. Yeah, I know, she said. She dished out the spaghetti and sauce for Danielle, put her salad bowl beside it, and went to the bedroom to talk with Tony. Look, if you'll just come and eat with us, I can't, he snapped. This has wrapped me up all day. As soon as I got the notification, I can't believe we're going through this again, of all days. Of all days, she said. I made a sale today, a big one, the one I've been angling for. I mean, it was the best feeling to seal that deal and shake that guy's hand, and then I get the news that you've, Tony, please, Danielle needs to hear you say it's okay, that she's okay. I'll talk to her later, he said. I'll tell her that later, and I don't need you telling me what I have to do. I have a relationship with my daughter, okay? You don't have to get between us like this. I'm not getting between you. I'm trying to help you understand. He grabbed his gym bag and stormed out of the room. The door to the garage slammed like thunder, and then she heard the familiar clacking and the sound of Tony's car pulling away. Tony drove fast to the gym and stretched out while waiting for a pickup game, and then he was off, dribbling and moving the ball up court as fast as he could. He was aggressive, going for the basket each time he touched the ball, driving to find an open lane. When one closed, he'd pull back and look for another. On defense, he went for steals, fouled hard, and worked up a good sweat at the expense of his opponents, mostly slower white guys. It felt good to be on the court, to be in a game he could control instead of something he couldn't. They were at game point, going to 20, of the third matchup, when his lifelong friend Michael called for the ball at the corner. The defense shifted slightly, and Tony shook his head. Finally, he got him the ball, and Michael dribbled near the top of the key and signaled. Tony nodded and followed Michael down the lane. It was poetry in motion. Everything slowed as Michael elevated and laid the ball off the glass. Tony jumped, took the ball, and jammed it through the net. Ball game, Michael shouted. Every player on the court and those waiting whooped and yelled at the move. 
Tony was surrounded by teammates who slapped his back and gave him high fives. His opponents even congratulated him. That was sick, one said. Let's run her back again, someone said behind him. Nah, Tony said, I gotta go, man. Come on, one more game. We just beat you three times. Tony glanced at the bleachers and saw two fresh players waiting. Let these guys play. All right, jump in, fellas. Tony sat on the bleachers and wiped his face with a towel. His muscles were loose now, and a lot of the stress from home was gone. The $5,000 still hung over him and stung his gut, but he had calmed somewhat about it. Michael sat next to him and gave him a slack-jawed look. You all right, dog? Yeah, Tony said. Why? You look like you played a little mad tonight. Michael was a good player, quick and able to see the whole court, but he didn't have the killer instinct. So? It just means I play better, Tony said. Better means ball hog? Dude, I can't get a pass from you. It'd be easier to baptize a cat. I just needed to blow off a little steam, okay? Well, I hope you're done. Tony smiled. Michael was right. But he was also jealous. There were some who had it and some who didn't. On the court and in life. Anyway, it's cool, man, Michael said. We all got to do that sometime. Tony could tell Michael was opening the door to talk about why he needed to blow off steam, and part of him wanted to go there. But he thought better of it, especially with somebody from church. The stuff about his family, his marriage, all of that was best kept to himself. And there were other things beneath the surface, steam rising from different places in his life he couldn't let escape. Not with somebody like Michael. Not with anybody, really. Yo, see you in church, right? Michael said. Maybe. Maybe means no, which was true. A maybe in a sale meant no. You kept pushing until you got a yes. But church didn't hold much interest for Tony. He saw it as a necessary evil, something that tied up his Sunday mornings, but was good for the family, good for his marriage, and supposedly good for his soul. Networking. He made contacts there and kept his image intact. It was just that church had become a guilt trip. He felt bad when he was there, as if something was off kilter down in his heart, and sitting in the pew looking at all the people with their lives together, perfect kids and perfect marriages, pointed out how much he didn't have. But when he didn't go, he got the glare from Elizabeth. Hey, Tony, you gotta hit me one, a player from the other team said as he was leaving. Come on, man, I gotta go, Tony said, smiling. The guy stuck his thumb over his shoulder to indicate the players behind him. Dude, I just told all these guys, just one. He knew what the guy was talking about, and it had nothing to do with basketball. He wanted to tell them he was tired. He wanted to just walk out. But everybody was turned now. He was on stage. Tony tossed the gym bag and towel to the floor and looked at the players as if to say, Watch this carefully. I'm only doing it once. He braced himself, tightened the muscles in his legs, and let the memory work. From a standing position, he jumped, flipped in the air, and landed perfectly on his feet with his arms tucked into his body. The new guys stood with their mouths open. The ones who'd seen it before clapped and cheered. I told you, the player yelled. Michael shook his head, and Tony grabbed his stuff. As he reached the door, Ernie Timms came into the gym, flipping through a stack of pages. He was a thin man with wisps of hair he tried to comb over, but that wasn't working for him. 
He'd been the director of the community center for a few years, and things weren't going well. It always seemed like there was some crisis they were trying to avert with funds or programs. What's up, Ernie? Tony said, noticing the man seemed a bit flustered. Hey, Tony, do you know how long you guys reserved the gym tonight? I think it was till 9.30, Tony said. Why? Ernie frowned. Oh, boy. I think we've double booked it. Okay, so, okay, thanks. Clueless. The guy was always walking around in some kind of daze. Tony was determined not to be like Ernie. Miss Clara. Clara was in the produce aisle at Harris Teeter, trying to choose the right size tomato, when Clyde dropped the bomb. Her son took her shopping each week and spent time with her in this humdrum duty. She was fine driving herself, of course, but it seemed to make Clyde feel like he was doing something for her. Plus, she got to spend time with him. After she had gotten past 70, visits to the doctor increased. They wanted her to come in every whipstitch. And investment people wanted to sell her some new policy. And the retirement home people practically camped out on her front steps. But she didn't expect the latest offer to come from her son. What would you think of coming to live with us, Mama? Clyde said. Clara found a soft spot she didn't like on the tomato and put it back. Now why in the world would I want to do a thing like that? Well, my guess is you won't want to right away, but Sarah and I have been talking about it, praying about it. She looked up at him. She could remember holding him on her lap, reading a story, kneeling down beside him. Then came the years she spent on her knees because she was concerned how he might turn out. Those years were long gone. With everything you got on your plate, you're praying about me coming to live with you? Clyde inspected the tomato now. Maybe this isn't the right place to bring it up. What are you so worried is going to happen to me? Clara said. You only live four blocks away. Mama, that old house and all those stairs, it concerns us. What if something happened? What if you fell? You won't keep that cell phone with you like we've asked. Do you want to see me do a handstand? Is that it? Here, hold my dress down while let Mama stop it. What will it take to prove to you that I can handle living alone? I know that you love that house. I know your treasures are there. My treasure is in heaven, and if I could go there and not be a burden to anyone, I'd hitch the wagon right now. And if that's what God wanted, he would have taken you a long time ago. He apparently has things for you to accomplish down here. Clara looked at Clyde squarely, a little twitch in her own eyes. Don't you think I've lived long enough to have the right to live where I want? Haven't I done enough to deserve that? You have, Mama, and you deserve a lot more. I'm just asking you to consider it for our sake. We don't want anything to happen. Nothing is going to happen to me, she said, scrunching her face into a frown. I'm not like some old codger who can't get around. You stop worrying about me. He pushed the cart away from her to the bread aisle. For some reason, every grocery store she had ever shopped at put the bread and milk on opposite ends of the universe. Produce and meat were separated, too. She followed him, toddling along, until she caught up and put the tomato in the cart. She could tell this conversation was weighing on him. You want that raisin bread you always get? Clyde said. Forget the raisin bread and turn around here and talk to me, Clara said, grabbing for a loaf and checking the stale date. Now what's going on in that head of yours? 
you know, we did some work on the garage and put in a little apartment on the back. You said you were going to rent that out for extra income, maybe take in somebody who needed help. He bobbed his head. Well, that was partially true. Sarah and I were kind of hoping we might be able to convince you to move in. That's what you were thinking all along, she said. That's the craziest thing I've heard in my life. What am I supposed to do with my house? Sell it, Mama. The house prices are good right now. You'd have a nest egg. Nest egg, she said, like the words left a bad taste in her mouth. My social security and your father's life insurance and pension are all I need. All it's going to take is one fall down those stairs. Now there you go again, she said, interrupting. You don't think I know how to use the handrail? Excuse me, the younger woman said. She had a fussy baby in a car seat in the middle of her cart. I just need a loaf of whole wheat. Grab a refresh one from up there, Clyde, and check the stale date, Clara said. This is my son. He thinks I should come live with him because I'm getting old and feeble. Clyde shook his head as he grabbed the bread. I didn't say that. Do I look old and feeble to you, Clara said to the young woman. Mama, this lady doesn't want to get into the middle of our problems. The young mother smiled and thanked Clyde for the bread. No, ma'am, you look quite healthy. See there, a mother knows. Clara waved a hand. She peeked over the edge of the car seat. My, would you look at that beautiful baby. The mother told Clara the child's name, and the sight of the old woman seemed to calm the child. I'm going to add this little one to my prayer list, if you don't mind, she said. I wouldn't mind at all. You can pray for my husband, too. The woman said it with some sadness in her voice. Well, I might as well throw in the whole lot of you. What's your name? Clara spent the next few minutes learning the woman's name and where she lived. Clara told her about her church and pulled Clyde into the conversation. When the young mother left, she seemed to walk with a lighter step. Have you ever met a stranger, Mama? Clyde said. I expect I have at some point. Clara said. She led Clyde to the dairy aisle for some low-fat cottage cheese. When she got there, she turned to him. I know you care about me, son. And I didn't know you were going to all the trouble of that apartment for me, so I'm flattered. When the Lord tells me it's time to move, she stopped, thinking about the feeling she'd had in her war room. I can keep the cell phone with me if it would make you feel better. Clyde looked at the floor and inspected the tile. When he looked up, there was a mist in his eyes, and Clara could swear she saw a hint of Leo in his face, the same kindness and gentleness leaking through. It's about your granddaughter. Hallie is having a rough time. I pray for that girl every day. I know you do. I've asked her to come over and talk with me. I'm just down the street, and I wish she would. But she stays in her room most of the time. We've tried everything. Sarah and I were thinking, if you lived with us, maybe your being closer would... I don't know. She put a hand on his arm. All that important stuff you do with the city, all those decisions, the teenage girl will wear you out. Clyde nodded. I'd rather deal with a Teamsters contract than try to figure out my daughter. What makes you think she would come see me if I moved in? She loves you, Mama. She always has. I think if you were there, it might be different. All we need is a crack in the door, just a little light, you know? 
The suspicious side of Clara thought this might be a ruse to pluck at her heartstrings. But when she saw the pain on her son's face, she knew it wasn't. And you've been praying I'd come live with you because of Hallie? I'd be lying if I said it was only that. We want you to be safe and not alone. And we don't want to force you or coerce you. But I got the impression the other day, and Sarah agreed. Both of us want this. Clara searched his eyes and saw what she was looking for. It was there, underneath all the layers. Love. That's why he was bringing all of this up. She had to focus on that, and not the bad feeling she had of being moved to the side of life's road. Even if this wasn't what he meant, it was the way she felt. When they checked out, she saw the young mother ahead of them, and waved at her and her baby. You'd have your privacy, Clyde said, picking up a magazine and leafing through it. We wouldn't bother you a bit. Clara stared at him. Where do you get this stubborn streak? It must come from your father's side of the family. Clyde laughed and shook his head. After her things were put away at home and Clyde had left, Clara headed upstairs and at the top stopped and wobbled, the room spinning. She reached out just in time to grab the handrail to steady herself. What if she had fallen? She could see Clyde looking down at her in some hospital room and a doctor suggesting a hip replacement.
Admittedly, I can be anxious at times as I consider the challenges I have to face. Like when I work to get ahead and still fall behind, I start to wonder if I was meant to win the race. Striving to do things right And when things go wrong Tempted to hide But this time I will be still This time I will be still
This one is Sean Mendes, Summer of Love. And those other two were a little too spicy for me with all the N words and P words. Next artist is Princess Nokia. It's uh, called Slumber Party. And the artist is Ash Nico, A S H N I K K O, Ash Nico. Featuring Princess Nokia. Hear this for the first time. Well, no, we don't need her. We don't need her language. The Swum remix with a Swum remix by Joji J O J I Joji, and the title was I Don't Wanna Waste My Time. <laughs> 
We're going to hear more from Swum. This one is Swisher. sure it's with an S. The next artist is called Chase Atlantic. C-H-A-S-E Chase Atlantic. The title is Swim. Atlantic Swim. The next one is by Isaac Zell. Z-A-L-E. Isaac Zell. The title, I See You. Three letters, I See You. refreshing he didn't cuss his, cuss anybody out slap anybody in the face okay might want to hear more from Isaac Zell the next one is Brian Adams never heard him before his title is summer of 69. Summer of 69. The next one, we're going back to hear Swim. The title is Far Away. Uh, 
Next up, Calvin Harris. Calvin with a C A L V I N. Calvin Harris. Its title is Summer. Nice job, Calvin Harris. We'll return to Swum. The title, Show Me How. Show Me How. is back the title forever in my mind Idealism forever in my mind, and the best for last, Kendrick Lamar. This one, swimming pools, parentheses, drank. Well, let's hear what this one is from our. One and only Kendrick. That's how you capitalize. This is parental advice, and apparently I'm over influenced by what you are doing. I thought I was doing the most that someone said to me. Nigga, why you babysitting? Only two or three shots. I'ma show you how to turn it up a notch. First, you get a swimming pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. Pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. I wave a few bottles, then I watch them all fly. All the girls wanna play, they watch. I got a swimming pool full of liquor, and they dive in it. Brings it every time. Oh, Kendrick. Let's see what else they have in the database for Kendrick. Oh, my. Kendrick Lamar. All the stars. That's Kendrick and his sister. Scissor, spelling it S Z A 
all the stars. Kendrick Lamar. We have him and Baby Keem. K-E-E-M. Family Ties with Kendrick. Baby Keem. Okay, we'll have to cut this this segment and start a new one. Thank you for listening.
And we were listening to a group called Idealism, I-D-E-A-L-I-S-M. There's a few others thrown in the mix. One group was Cold, E-C-O-L-D-E, and it's called The Museum. Let's hear it again. tell you for sure I thought I heard a little bit of Japanese in there nage and other Japanese phrases then it sounded a little Portuguese not sure now here's another one that was in the lineup their name is digitalism and their song was Pogo, P-O-G-O. They would the um, sound like heavy metal, if I recall. Let's listen again. Exactly, heavy metal. Hmm. Well, if you download that, uh, what do you call it, Groove Pad app from the App Store, you might hear something like that. They call techno trap or techno something. They have samples of all kind of music. Well, now the the last time I heard uh, Jermaine Dupree talk about trap music he said that is really a, an, a sound of music that originated from Atlanta but it's not the same as this this music that we just heard so it shows how talented artists are. They can mix all these different styles together and create something totally brand new, totally different, just through synthesizing different styles. Okay, there's another one in here that's new. They spell it. Capital S, W, U, capital M, SWAM, and their title was With You, the letter U, With You.
Wasn't he good or she good? Let's look them up. Everything else was music by Idealism. I-D-E-A-L-I-S-M. Idealism. Let's look up Swam. S-W-U capital M. S-W-U capital M. And we'll end this segment and we'll come back with Swam. Thank you for listening.